You may be seated. Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 14 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. Turn with me again there, if you would, to that passage, Romans 14. Uh, in a minute, I'm going to read from verses 13 through the end of the chapter. Uh, and I would like you to have your Bibles open. If you don't have one, you can use one uh, in the pew ahead of you. If you don't own a Bible at all, please feel free to take that as our gift to you. We'd love for you to leave with a copy of the scriptures uh, if you don't uh, have one. It's been a little awkward, a bit of an awkward day for me today because people have said, how was your vacation last week? And I've said, it was great. In fact, it was so good I'm going again. So I will be gone starting tomorrow. We were in Western New York last weekend uh, with my side of the family. This week we are going to Western New York to spend time with my in-laws. So um, that will be good and we look forward to it. And you will be in good hands next week. Rob Fields, who has visited Grace often, many of you may know him, he is... Uh, Mandy Hinkle's father, Rob Fields, will be uh, preaching. I have assured him multiple times that the service starts at 10 a.m., so <laughs> that should be just fine. Uh, next week, I think you'll be uh, in good hands. Uh, before we look into Scripture, let's uh, pray together, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and we do so gladly. We are thankful to you for the opportunity that we have to meet together uh, with one another this morning. You have commanded us to come and we come now uh, having sung and, and given and uh, in anticipation of the Lord's Supper and with your word open, asking you that by your spirit you would speak to us through it. Uh, your word is powerful, is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is discerning. And I pray that you by your word would unmask us to ourselves that we would see more clearly our need for the grace of the Lord Jesus and that we would find in the word, even as we look at it, this treasury of joy that is found in him. Lord, we come this morning to you, thankful to you for the um, unity and harmony that is a part of our congregation. It is such a vast contrast to the um, meanness and divisiveness that is in our own culture. Lord, we are discouraged by the vitriol, by the words. Uh, we're disheartened. We're devastated by the violence. We think of people who are gathering in churches this morning in New Mexico and Ohio, and they're coming with extra burdens of grief today. Lord, um, we, we confess that sometimes, to our great discouragement, it is our brothers and sisters in Christ who have uh, add to the toxic atmosphere. We are quick to post and quick to speak and slow to listen and reluctant to love our neighbor as ourself. Lord, we pray that as we interact with our neighbors and our family members and our friends, that our words would be seasoned with grace, that we would speak kindly and patiently, helpfully, uh, speak words of truth that would build up those who listen and, and not snide things, foolish things, hurtful things. Help us, Lord, uh, as the Lord Jesus himself called us to be salt and light, help us to be those things in our interaction during these difficult days. Lord, we do pray for those that you have entrusted into, into authority over our government. I'm thankful Rob Fields is going to be speaking about that next week. But Lord, we pray that you would grant them wisdom, that they would uh, speak carefully and wisely and compassionately. Lord, um, do us kindness in granting us a government that is better than the one that we deserve. Lord, this morning we pray for our sister Esther Johns, who will be flying back this week to the country where she lives with her parents and serves. Lord, we're a bit anxious for her on Friday. Uh, as she goes back, uh, customs officials have been turning people, even with visas like her, away, uh, Americans. And, and we're concerned about whether or not she'll be able to land and stay. 
We pray that you would open the door for her to be able to be reunited with her parents and to resume the work that she's doing there. We pray as they have plans very soon after she arrives to uh, uh, Dick and Esther will, will travel out to some of the eastern cities where your name is not known or mentioned or revered. And uh, we pray that you would give them courage, that you would open doors of opportunity for them. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would bring glory to your great name as your son and his wonder, his beauty is shared and spoken. Lord, again, now as we turn to your word, we pray for clarity of thought and mind that the words of our mouth and the me- my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. You are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Solidify our confidence in you today. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. Now, <clears throat> now to read Romans 14, verse 13. Let's begin, shall we? Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. Have you ever seen an episode of Antiques Roadshow? Uh, Antiques Roadshow has been uh, on television shows in Great Britain for 40 years. Uh, It's been produced and shown uh, by PBS in the United States since 1997. It's generated all kinds of uh, um, uh, spin-offs and incarnations. American Treasures, American Pickers, Pawn Stars. I believe there's a place in Lancaster where you can go uh, on a regular basis and bring your treasures you know the basic format of these shows, right? Uh, the producers set up at a local mall and invite people to bring in their family heirlooms and treasures. And, and expert appraisers, you, you come onto the screen, and expert appraisers will talk to you about uh, your possessions and uh, where they came from and how much they're worth. And there's always that moment of suspense, right, where they tell, would you like to know how much this is appraised at? And, Ooh, yes, I would. And um, then they t- and some people are pleasantly surprised, and some people are disappointed. The most valuable item that was ever discovered on Antiques Road shows a 1904 Diego Rivera oil painting. It was appraised in the show and then reappraised last year at between $1.2 and $2.2 million. Now, here's my question this morning. Why do we like to watch shows like Antiques Road Show? Why are shows like that so popular? Uh, I have a couple theories. Uh, one, I think it's part of our fascination with American, uh, our American fascination with rags to riches stories. We watch because we want to see sympathetic people get rewarded. You remember uh, people follow me here on the television screen walks Mrs. Eugenia Furchin, age 72, from Hogsnagel, Ohio. And Hogsnagel is in the, the south part of the Buckeye State. It's near the mountains of West Virginia. And Mrs. Eugenia Furchin, age 72, is on the verge of poverty. She's lived there her whole life. And she, she lives in a house in which she was born. Her family is owned for four generations. And it is to be uh, generous. It is a dilapidated house. 
Now, when she heard that Antiques Roadshow was going to be taping in Columbus, she thought about her, the vase that has been in her family since Aunt Violet won it at the county fair in 1936. It was the middle of the Depression, but Aunt Violet was able to put together enough flour and butter and shortening and strawberries to make one of her signature strawberry pies. And she took it to the county fair and she set it before the judges. And you know that county fair judges, when they taste things, are supposed to be stone-faced. But if you were looking very closely at these judges, when they tasted Aunt Violet's signature strawberry pie, there was a little bit of a raised eyebrows. A little bit of a smile came over their face. Everybody knew Aunt Violet was going to win, and she did. She won the blue ribbon, the grand prize of $2.50, and a porcelain vase. It was unusual that uh, uh, that prize had been awarded just that year. It was uh, donated by a local shop owner. His name was Albert Hubbard, and uh, he had donated the vase. The story of how he got it is too long. I won't tell you that this morning. The vase made it to Aunt Violet's house, where for most of the time it sat on a shelf in her dining room. Every now and then it had flowers in it, mostly dandelions, sometimes some black-eyed Susans. Uh, but it just stayed there most of the time. And Eugenia Furchin, age 72, had been dusting this vase for 65 years. And then when she heard about Antiques Roadshow, she thought about this vase. She went with her friend uh, from church, Gladys, Gladys was the better driver. She drove in her 1982 Plymouth Grand Fury the 87 miles from their home in Hogsnaggle to Columbus in the left lane, 45 miles an hour on the freeway, you know. <laughs> so they made it on the show, and when Mrs. Eugenia Furchin set the vase down, the appraisers were stunned. It was a mint-conditioned porcelain vase made exclusively to be put on display at the Chicago World's Columbian Exposition of 1893. There were 46 vases that were commissioned that year, one for each of the nations that were represented at the Columbian Exposition, and all 46 were on display in the main exhibition hall at Chicago. And uh, they, uh, in existence, there are five of them still remaining. Two of them are in the hands of private collectors. Three of them are museums. And now here was a sixth one that was owned by Mrs. Eugenia Furchin of Hogsnagel, Ohio. And when the appraisers told her that her vase was worth $287,000, she was stunned. It changed her whole life. She sold her house, she moved into the retirement community of her dreams, and she lived out her days in peace and prosperity. There was a nice little gift for the church. There was even a little bit left over set aside for her mostly useless collection of ne'er-do-wells, nieces, and nephews. It was an amazing story, Mrs. Eugenia Furchin. We love, we love to watch stories like that, right? Now, we like stories like that because whether we realize it or not, they're reminiscent of the gospel itself. We've gathered to celebrate a story of the God who takes people with dilapidated lives and through the treasure of his own son transforms them so that they live out their eternity in peace and prosperity. It's a wonderful story. We like stories like that. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're living in that story. You might be in the rags part right now, but the riches are coming someday. The other reason, though, I think that we like to watch shows like American uh, Antiques Roadshow is not because we like to see, just to see stories of Mrs. Eugenia Furchin. Many people want to be Mrs. Eugenia Furchin, right? Many people have this dream. Maybe you do. Somewhere, somewhere, I know it's true. Somewhere in your attic or in your basement or in your garage, you have some hidden secret item that is worth thousands of dollars. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you have taken something in your grandmother's house and looked it up on eBay? Right? Huh. Um, most of us probably have. I, I, I know you have it. You have to have it somewhere in your house. Somewhere in your house there is something that is so valuable, it's going to change your life. And Antiques Roadshow keeps that dream alive for every single one of us. The mission that this text in Romans chapter 14 gives me this morning is to tell you that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have, indeed, you do have a treasure of great worth. 
In these few paragraphs, the Apostle Paul wants you to know about the treasure that is yours because of your faith in the Lord Jesus and the resulting fellowship you have with God's people. You already have that treasure. And the Apostle Paul wants me to talk to you this morning about the ways in which this treasure changes your life. Some of you will remember how we got to this point this this morning. At at the beginning of the summer, we started to talk about your conscience. Your conscience is that inner witness that God has given each of us that testifies to you about whether or not you are living up to your own standards of right and wrong. The conscience doesn't tell you about whether or not your standards match God's standards. No one's standards match God's standards perfectly. Part of what it means to grow as a follower of Jesus is to have your convictions match God's standards increasingly. But in the meantime, in the meantime, you have this conscience that God has given you that at times accuses you and at times vindicates you. The unanimous testimony of the New Testament is that you must obey your conscience. You, as long as it does not explicitly contradict a direct or repeated command in the scriptures, you are accountable to God for how you listen to your conscience. Paul emphasizes this again at the end of chapter 14 when he says, whoever eats, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. It's interesting how he uses the word faith in this chapter. He's talking about your conscience, your God-turned-oriented um, uh, uh, conscience. And if, if you're not eating uh, in coherence with your conscience, you are sinning, uh, Paul says. Now, the reason that you're sinning is because you are doing something that you believe is dishonoring God, and, 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 and that's serious. Don't violate your conscience. Romans 14 is here to tell us what to do as followers of Jesus when our consciences don't agree with one another. Here are the issues uh, uh, in, in this chapter. We've talked about them. Eating meat. Some people saw eating meat in this culture terribly contaminated by idolatry. The meat was contaminated so they couldn't eat it. And marking special days. He mentions that particularly in Romans 14.5. What does a brother or sister do when he or she believes it is a sin to eat meat or to work on the Sabbath, but another brother or sister does not? These matters are, here's that term we learned a couple weeks ago, adiaphora. They're neither prohibited nor commanded by the scriptures. But the conscience is at work in each of us. And what do we do when our consciences don't agree? I hope you noticed a few weeks ago that... that, um, Paul, his advice is not for you to become wishy-washy about it or uh, indifferent. That that can't be because in verse 5, Paul says, each of you should be fully convinced in your own mind. Be fully convinced. If you don't have convictions about the idea of four issues, figure it out. Read the Bible. Talk to wise people. Think hard. Be fully convinced. Don't be wishy-washy. And then, being fully convinced... We're to welcome one another, accept one another, love one another, don't judge one another, don't don't treat one another with contempt. And for those with greater freedom of conscience, don't be a stumbling block to one another. A couple weeks ago, I broke this section that we just read kind of unnaturally so we could focus on this concept of being a stumbling block. If you know a fellow believer has a, has a particularly sensitive conscience about eating meat, uh, don't encourage them. Don't act in such a way so that they, in violation of their conscience, eat. And what's difficult about this paragraph is that it's easy for those with a weak conscience to use this concept of a stumbling block to try to control other people. This is a common tendency in 20th century America in more conservative churches, churches just like ours. Um, To say things like, I am bothered that you are doing what I believe that faithful followers of Jesus should not. It could be drinking alcohol in moderation, getting a tattoo, having long or short hair, wearing shorts or pants, watching movies. You know, I've given you the list several times. These odd four issues. I'm bothered by what you're doing and you need to stop. The Bible says that you have to stop bothering me by your behavior. You are stumbling to me. You're a stumbling block to me. Now this paragraph makes us ask a question. 
Are you bothered in the sense that you are tempted to violate your conscience and join me in getting a tattoo or going to the movies? Most of the time, the answer would have been, absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, I just don't think, I don't like that you're doing it. I don't think any Christian should be doing it. You shouldn't be doing it. If you're not tempted or encouraged to, in violation of your conscience, take that step, this passage about being a stumbling block is not really for you. You should read earlier in the chapter when he talks about judgmentalism because it can be easy to use this passage to to push people, to condemn people with different consciences than you have. Paul here is concerned about the real harm that a brother or sister can bring uh, by uh, encouraging others to violate their conscience. Disobeying your conscience is serious. It puts you on the path. And Paul uses this word of destruction. And those with greater freedom, Paul says, you have to be careful. And to motivate them, that care that he wants from them, Paul names in verses 16 through 23, five things that are more important than your liberty. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Here are things that you should value more than your liberty. You may have the right to do something, but followers of Jesus, our behavior is not determined by our rights. There's a lot of rights talk in our culture. Our behavior is not determined by our rights. Our behavior is determined by love. Here are priceless treasures that Paul's going to name that are so valuable, so praiseworthy, they are worth proscribing your own liberty, limiting your own rights. Value these things chiefly and then put liberty in its place. So I want to touch briefly on these five for the balance of our time. Um, When you correctly appraise what is described here, it will help you learn how to express your liberty with love. It will change how and why you use the freedoms that are ours through the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the list. Ready? What's more valuable than liberty? Number one, we'll start with the most obvious, verse 17, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 17 again. Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul begins his sentence by talking about the kingdom of God here. It's not a phrase that Paul uses very often. Uh, When he does, when Paul uses the phrase kingdom of God, he most often is talking about that reign that is to come in the future. After Christ returns, when he reigns visibly and fully, that day is coming. And Paul may be speaking about here how the joys of that day roll back into our time through the Holy Spirit. The benefits of that day are ours in the present day through the Holy Spirit. That's possible. Or he could be referring here to the kingdom of God as God's universal reign. He's the sovereign creator of all things and because of that, um, all sense, uh, all creation is in sense uh, a kingdom and in this kingdom, the values, our priorities are righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, why does Paul put these three virtues together like this? Why does he do that? Maybe he's building on something that the Lord Jesus himself said. A few minutes ago, Joe read from Matthew 6. Think about this verse in terms of Matthew 6. Matthew 6, 25. Therefore, Jesus said, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. And then verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Or maybe we could actually go back a little closer to Romans 14, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and Paul puts these things together. Um, Listen, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, now that word justified is the verb of the noun righteous. So you could say, therefore, since we have been righteous, declared righteous through faith, uh, we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast, your translation might say, we rejoice, the synonym for joy, in the hope of the glory of God. The whole book of Romans has been about this, these three topics. First, righteousness. Our great problem as human beings is that we are not naturally righteous. We are unrighteous. 
we fall short of God's perfect standards. Every year we go to Long's Park to watch the army band, Pershing's Own, play the patriotic concert. And I sit in the, on the grass and I look at those musicians up there and, you know, I play the baritone poorly and I watch and I think, man, I'd love to be up there on stage with those guys. That would be awesome to be able to play what they're doing right now. That would be so much fun. I'd love it. The truth of the matter is I'm not good enough to play on the stage. I'm not qualified. Some of you say, well, practice, if any, practice. Yeah, but you know, there's this, there's, when you get to those elite places, athleticism, musicianship, there's more than just practice. There's a little genetics that goes on, and I ain't got the genes. At least I don't think so. She's not qualified to be there. The Bible tells us about the great God who made the earth, who called the world into existence, and he is, he is awesome. And you're not qualified to be his friend, to join him in his kingdom. Why? Because of your unrighteousness. And you can practice and practice and practice all you want. You're not qualified. If you're going to be qualified... You, you, someone else, you got to get righteousness from somewhere else. And the Bible tells us that God gives us righteousness through the Lord Jesus. It's only through Him, through turning to Him and trusting in Him, that we have peace with God. And that result in peace is, uh, brings to us joy. There is something missing in your life as a follower of Jesus if it doesn't revolve around righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And there is something missing in a church that does not center around righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Do you know how to tell they're missing from your church? Do you know how to tell if you don't have this sense of righteousness, peace, and joy? Well, one of the ways that you can tell is that a, a, a church is missing righteousness, peace, and joy if it spends all of its time arguing about adiaphora, about liberty, about matters of conscience. What's interesting, Doug Moo points this out, is that in the Gospels, Jesus told the Pharisees that they were forgetting the more important matters of the law, mercy and compassion, because of the rules they kept. That was Jesus' warning to the Pharisees in the Gospels. In, in Romans, Paul warns those of the strong conscience in the church in Rome that they were going to forget these central things, righteousness, peace, and joy, by the freedom that they had. There are two ways to distract a congregation from righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. One is by focusing too much on the rules, and one is by focusing too much on freedom. Two ways to destroy this sense of righteousness, peace, and joy in the congregation. Paul's, in a certain sense, telling us that our life together as a church should revolve so much around this righteousness, peace, and joy that we have that we don't have time to argue about or hurt one another with our convictions in the areas of liberty. Eating and drinking and dancing and haircuts and music styles and all those other issues are so unimportant in comparison that they just get left behind. They're so unimportant that we don't have time. No one needs to flaunt their freedom or poke others in their eye with their convictions. How are you doing on building relationships with people in our congregation that are based on righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit? Some of you struggle with this. Some of you, it's not very natural for you to talk about these things. Can I suggest to you that one of the benefits of building habits, uh, Jeff Mindler spoke about the habit of family worship a few weeks ago, or the habit of belonging to a growth group, is that it sets the context for discussing those matters with others. It's scheduled. Here's the moment. We're going to talk about righteousness, peace, and joy. And whether it comes naturally to you or not, it's scheduled. It's on the calendar. We're going to talk about these things now. These are things that matter more than your individual conscience. Righteousness, peace, and joy. Now what else is there? Let's look back here at verse 16. Number two, we're going to find here in verse 16, the good freedom that Christ brings. What's more important than liberty? The good freedom that Christ brings. Verse 16 says, Therefore do not let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil. Now, the question here is, what's the good in verse 16? What's the good there that he's talking about? 
Remember, he's writing particularly to people who are strong, have strong conscience. Those who have the freedom of conscience to eat meat and drink wine and treat days or light. These are goods. They're good things. The strong have the freedom to enjoy all of the good gifts that God has given. The weak do not yet have that freedom. Now follow me here for a minute. There have always been religious people who believe that in order to be accepted by God, you have to do certain things. You have to perform certain rituals. You have to be baptized. You have to be circumcised. You have to give to the poor. You have to be a good person. That's what most people believe in our world, that I'm a good person, so I will go to heaven because I'm a good person. That's what most people believe. Uh, That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, it says that no one is good enough to earn God's favor. That's not Paul's concern here in Romans 14 for the weak and the strong. There were churches where that was a problem. So uh, think of the church in Galatia. Um, Paul wrote to the Galatians. um, The Galatians were struggling with this idea that in order to be a real Christian, you had to uh, be circumcised and obey all the commands of the Old Testament. And in Galatians, Paul argues, no, Christ died to set us free from the compulsion we have to earn our way. It's impossible to do. And the very notion of earning is contrary to the grace of God. So Paul wrote in Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. There's an old hymn, it's called It Is Finished by James Porter. The last line goes, cast your deadly doing down. This notion that you can do to earn God's approval. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. The Christians at Rome understood this. They understood this, what Paul was writing about. But some of them had lived for so long under these rules in the Old Testament, the rules about meat and days, that they had a difficult time letting go of them. In that sense, they were weak. They had not yet fully embraced all of the good freedoms that come through Christ Jesus. So Paul issues this warning. Don't act in such a way, you strong conscience people, that people think that the freedom that Christ has given us is bad. Don't hurt people with your freedom. The freedom is so good, it's worth protecting, it's worth using wisely. Here's an illustration that might help. So we spent a fair amount of time in the spring uh, looking for a new car. Our 10-year-old Rondo um, was getting a bit small for our growing children. Children grow, cars don't. That's a hard lesson. So we uh, dragged Luke with us as we went around shopping, and he uh, became increasingly interested in it. He settled on a favorite car. One of his favorites is the Ford Fusion. It's a sedan. He likes it. He likes how it looks. He likes how it's shaped. So let's imagine if in a few years down the road that on Luke's 16th birthday, out of the kindness of my heart, I give him a brand new Ford Fusion. This is for illustrative purposes only. So let's imagine. Let's imagine. Happy birthday, here's a car. Would that be a wise or a foolish gift? Hmm. I know some of you have opinions about that. Don't judge me. But let's think here. It depends. Doesn't it depend at least in part on how he uses the gift that I give him? So let's imagine that he, if the first thing he does is he takes his new car out and he races down the highway at 85 miles an hour and causes a horrific accident, what would you say? That was a terrible gift. How, how would you ever recover if you gave your child a, 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 a something like that and they use it to destroy people? How would you ever get over that? What though, on the other hand, if he used it on Sunday mornings to offer rides to church to senior citizens. Man, what a good gift. It's a great gift. Don't use the gift of freedom that Christ has given you to hurt people. Use it to serve people. Don't act in such a way that people say, I know that Christ has set us free, but freedom is just dangerous. It hurts people. It's not good. Don't act that way, Paul says. Freedom in Christ is a precious gift. Use it wisely to help others, not to hurt them. Now, here's a third treasure that is precious enough to control the way you use your liberty. It's in verse 18, the pleasure of God. The pleasure of God. Can you even believe this is a possibility? The pleasure of God. Look at the text here. Verse 18 says, Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God 
and receives human approval. Now the key question here in this text is, what does the in this way mean? Well, the closest reference, of course, is back into verse 17, living a life of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. But, but in the whole text, he's talking about people who use their liberty wisely, not serving as a stumbling block, um, treating liberty carefully. If you do this, if you treat it wisely, you please God. Is that even possible? Some of you spend so much time under this low-level hum of guilt that you can't even imagine that it can be done, that God could be pleased with the choices that you make. But if you use the freedom that you have been given by God to benefit others, you please Him. If your 16-year-old son used his car to take senior citizens to church on Sunday, wouldn't you be pleased? What are you doing with your freedom that God has given you? This actually reminds me of, of how Paul spoke about his freedom in 1 Corinthians 9. Look at what it says here. He says, Though I'm free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win, win as many as possible. What's his goal? Winning as many possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this all. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Paul says, I have freedom and and I can go anywhere and do anything for the sake of the gospel. I can eat with Gentiles. I can eat with Jews. I can eat with anybody. It doesn't matter. And what does he do? He uses his freedom to win them for the sake of the gospel. So to put it in more contemporary terms, Paul's free. He can go anywhere. Paul, can you go to a movie theater for the sake of the gospel? Yep. Can you go to a pub? Sure. Can you go to a tattoo parlor? All right, I'm not going to get one, but I could go in. I don't know what Paul would say about that. I'm not sure. Racetrack? Sure. Choir practice? Yes. Okay, I can go to choir practice. Cigar lounge? All right. Church? You bet. Gentlemen's club? No. No. He's still under Christ's rule, right? He's under the law of Christ. So you say no to the gentlemen's club. But there are a lot of other places he can go. He's free to go with this purpose, for the sake of the gospel. And this pleases God. Now, there's two other treasures in this passage that I want to consider this morning. The next one may be my favorite on the list. What's more important than the exercise of your freedom? Uh, Number four, I think, the work of God. The work of God. Verse 20. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. The work of God. What's, what's he referring to when he says the work of God? This is, this is stunning. He's talking about the church itself and the people who are in it. The work of God. Treasure this. This is stunning. Sitting around you at this very moment are men and women and teenagers among whom God is working. This should change how you think and how you live and how you act before them. God at work. Every year, hundreds of thousands of people visit the great museums of Europe to see the work of master painters and sculptors. Have you ever been to the Louvre to see uh, the Mona Lisa? Be careful about this. Some of you have this in your mind. You have this in your imagination that you're going to walk into this great silent chamber and be able to stand for hours and stare at that beautiful woman with that enigmatic smile, right? No. You and about 800 of your closest friends will be corralled into a room where standing behind some tourist from Belgium, you'll be able to, if you look under his arm or around his shoulder, see behind several inches of plastic or glass that face for a little bit, and then they'll corral you out of this room. Is it worth doing that? There are millions of people who have thought so. Now, why? Because they want to see the work of the master. They want to see the work of the genius, Leonardo da Vinci. Brothers and sisters, behold in this room the work of God. What are we going to do with it? 
Protect it. Love it. Serve it. This is God's work. No church is perfect. Every congregation has problems that it just can't work through. I understand that. We're, we're human beings. I've been at grace long enough that all the problems in this church now are officially my fault. I can't blame anybody else. They're mine. That's why church pastors leave churches after three years. It's not my fault. And they go. Everything's my fault. But we're the central location place of the work of God. I confess I have a selfish interest in this passage, in this concept. I'm reading a book right now. It's, it's for pastors. It's meant to encourage us to persevere in preaching. There's one passage I appreciated. The author, his name is Lewis Allen, I think, uh, begins by quoting John Flavel, who actually quoted Martin Luther, so Puritan and the Reformer. Here's, here's the quote. The labors of the ministry will exhaust the very marrow from your bones, hasten old age and death. Some of you won't believe it by looking at me, but I'm only 22 years old. (laughs) He continues, They are fittingly compared to the toil of men in harvest, the labors of a woman in travail, and to the agonies of soldiers and the dangers of battle. We must watch when others sleep. Hopefully not when you're preaching. (laughs) It is not, listen to this, it is not so much the expense of the labors as the loss of them that kills us. It is not with us as with other laborers. They find their work as they leave it. Not so with us. Sin and Satan unravel almost all we do. The impressions we make on our people's souls in one sermon vanish before the next. This is not very encouraging. I I have one correction. He says that other laborers find their work as they leave it. I'm not sure John Flavel ever cleaned up a playroom after a toddler. Regardless, here's the work. The impressions we make on our people's souls in one sermon vanish before the next. Does your Sunday school lesson ever feel that way? Or your wise parenting or your growth group leadership, you study, you work, you prepare, you speak, and it's beautiful, and poof, it vanishes. Then later in this book, though, Lewis Allen says, the beauty of it, the wonder of it, is that when you teach the Bible, you are offering Jesus. Jesus offers himself to his people through his word. Whenever you teach the word and proclaim the word and read it and explain it, you are offering people the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the work of God. When we gather together on Sunday mornings and read the Bible, as you speak the Psalms that we spoke this morning, as you sing the truths of the Bible in these songs, you are both watching and participating in the work of God to call and comfort and confront his people. This church, this is the work of God. Oh, it is a treasure. Wait in line to see the Mona Lisa you should. It's a masterpiece. In the church of Jesus Christ, here's the work of God. Is that enough to change the way you think about your liberty? Here's treasure number five, the opportunity to encourage one another. The opportunity to encourage one another. This is the treasure that we ought not take for granted. Verse 17, he says, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace. He mentions that again. And to mutual edification. Paul uses this contrast in the text. Um, He commands building up, that's the word edification, not tearing down, that's the word destroy in verse 20. Build up, don't tear down. Build one another up, don't tear them down. If this is the work of God, here's the invitation to join in. Use the liberty you have to serve and encourage and help not to hurt or divide or cut off or offend. So it's about 11 o'clock. What were you thinking about three hours ago? Some of you may have just been getting up. Some of you have been up for three hours. Three hours ago, what were you thinking about? Well, uh, maybe some of you are thinking about what you're going to wear, what you need for breakfast, thinking about what you're going to do this afternoon after church. I'm curious to know what you were thinking about coming to this place having the opportunity to come and meet with God's people at at 10 o'clock. Did you have in mind, this is the work of God. And and when I go, perhaps, I'll be able to participate in it by the words I speak, the encouragement that I can offer to others. 
It takes discipline to, to, to come to that point. You have to work at that. To think about that in advance. It's a lot more natural to think about, oh, it's Sunday and it's a beautiful day. I could be at the lake and here I am going to church. That's more natural. Or do I have to button that top button on my, do I have to wear this noose? I mean, do I have to do that, right? Do, uh, do I have to go again? It's not more natural to think that way than to think, work of God, encouraging other people. can't believe I get that opportunity. This is the work of God. I want in on God's work. I want to be able to encourage other people in it. Think with me for the, as we finish this morning about Mrs. Eugenia Furchin from Hogsnagel, Ohio. She's driving to Columbus. Gladys is driving. She's riding with Aunt Violet's vase. She had no idea the value of the vase on this trip. She grabbed it off the shelf and she threw it in an old grocery shopping bag and uh, put it in the back seat as she drove to Columbus. After she was on the show and she found out that that vase was worth $287,000, how do you think she took it home? Oh, reverently, carefully, almost too frightened to handle it. Brothers and sisters, here is the treasure of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Handle your freedom in this body with care. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we are grateful to you this morning as we read this passage. The Apostle Paul has instructed us what to do and he has given us beautiful and wonderful reasons why. Lord, we confess we often underestimate the value of the body of Christ and our church and the participation that we have in it. It's easy to do. It's easy to undervalue it. We're, we're as Paul said in Corinthians, we're, we're not an impressive lot of people. And we, we make mistakes. We mess things up. And yet, yet you have reminded us through your word that you are at work. Oh, I pray, Father, that you would enable us by your spirit to help us treasure this work that you are doing. Treasure it in such a way that it changes how we treat one another, how we love one another, how we welcome, accept, and refrain from judging and treating with contempt one another. Do these things in us. As, as part of our mission to glorify the Lord Jesus, to show the supreme worth of who he is and what he has done. As we turn to the table even this morning, Lord, remind us, uh, cement as, as, we, as we eat and as we drink, cement these truths in our minds and in our hearts for your glory and for our good. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. Please stand again with us. We have many, many treasures to be thankful for. One of those treasures is the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ as he died on the cross for our sins. So as we sing this um, song, let let us have an attitude of thanksgiving for, for all of those treasures. Mysteries of the cross I cannot comprehend The agonies of Calvary You, the perfect Holy One, crushed your Son, who drank the bitter cup reserved for me. Your blood has washed away my sin, Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied, Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your 
Table, Jesus, stand. 